0: Welcome back to another episode of Say Who Say Pod. He's Danny O'Neill. I'm Christian Capel. Play it, Danny. How
1: the f do I get to Longview? I don't know.
2: How am I getting to Longview? Too. Hey, if I spent $2,000 for a flight, round trip from Longview to Vancouver, Madden- Vancouver back to Longview, why the f am I not on a flight back to Longview?
1: <laughs> Does the fact it's not Longview, Washington ruin it?
0: No, because I tell in my head it's still it. Because I I picture I picture the little airport in Kelso where the little planes can take off and land, and I just I picture a commercial jet carrying just this guy flying from Medford into Longview, but but it's actually in Kelso, so they land in Kelso and he throws a fit that it, he he was trying to go to Longview and now he's going to drive ten minutes or whatever. That does capture. I'm I'm I like playing that off the top though because that captures kind of the vibe I want to. Create on this podcast. You know that's the mood I want people to be in when they're listening.
1: An angry imperative. An angry imperative to go to a destination no one wants to go to. (laughs) Well, not no one. That's our mo here.
0: Pod. 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 Does it help when they do the sing-along and add the add the audio effect to it? A hey, uh, a listener... Let me see if I can find it. A listener replied to my uh, tweet of last week's episode saying that... Here it is. <laughs> Adam Esser at Oaktown Ace says, Damn it, Christian. All I keep hearing in my head is say who, say pod. <laughs> Really Presumably funny. in the deadpan.
1: Now you know what's funny. I think I know Adam. Oh yeah. I think I went to college with Adam. It's very unlikely there would be an Adam Esser listening to a UW Huskies podcast who's from Oakland. That was not the Adam Esser that I went to school with from ninety seven. Well, there you go. '97. Like that's that would be pretty unusual, right? Like it's the same. He was from the Bay Area. I think he went to. Might have went to Bishop Amat. Uh, he was a member of Sigma Chi. Yeah, that's pretty funny. This
0: is an Adam Esser facts podcast now.
1: <laughs> there you go. Shout out to Adam Esser. Thanks for listening. I believe yeah. he was a doctor. I know he was pre med.
0: I'm not gonna. I do. I do this all the time. Like, and I'm sure you do too. It's that like journalistic instinct. I'll. I'll just. Like if we're having a conversation like this, I'll just oh let me see I'll, I'll look up his LinkedIn page and I'll see you know what's he doing maybe he, maybe he is not you know I, I won't do that I won't I won't continue to just pull out random facts about this about this person on our on our podcast but I hope you're having a good day Adamester and thanks for listening.
1: What do we got? We got the off season. We got I I saw I saw the the Washington State president shed a little light on why it's taken so long. Did you see the interview he did?
0: He did. Weren't we talking about that exact thing like a couple months ago about hey. how maybe now like the, the the mass layoffs and everything is creating a <laughs> a bad look? I don't him him saying him going and saying that during an interview doesn't doesn't actually like necessarily reinforce to me that like, oh, we were right. Look how ahead of the curve we were because I I still don't really think that it's that big of a deal, but it, it certainly gives the Pac-12 something to kind of fall back on.
1: It's a really funny, and for people that don't know, Kirk Kirk Schultz, the the Wazoo president, he was being asked about the media rights deal. And he basically said, we've had companies tell us they're ready to sign tomorrow, that it just looks bad right now because they're going through (laughs) layoffs. And I I believe that the term that, that gets used in these is bad optics, which is a hilarious piece of euphemism or verbal gymnastics, like whatever you want to get yeah, it's it's actually gonna look bad when we're laying off hundreds, perhaps thousands of people to say, We're gonna give you two billion dollars to broadcast your football games. We'd like a little space to to so it doesn't look so bad. And everybody's like, yeah. Oh yeah, that's totally reasonable. Instead of like, you can't trick us. You can't like just <laughs> just because you don't announce it now doesn't mean that I'm I, I don't have the attention span of a gerbil, but apparently America does have the attention span of a gerbil.
0: Yeah, let's um could you give us a couple weeks to kind of get clear of this?
2: Yeah, get
1: clear. <laughs> we've,
0: we've recently streamlined our headcount in response to changing economic headwinds.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I it's... love stream streamlining of headcount is what is my all time favorite buzzword for
1: firing. <laughs> the Yeah. Yeah, cutbacks trying to become more efficient. Um Leaner. Uh, there's there's more so nimble. many things and i don't get it and this actually this actually comes up all the time i don't understand why people allow rich rich dudes or rich people or officials that run rich companies to get away with that sort of stuff of like we recite their corporate jargon for them like it's wild like all of a sudden it starts like circling back and like all of these things that happen in rich guy meetings become part of how we talk to, to the point that earlier this week, did you see the owner of the Suns got, like, shoved, and I say that in scare quotes, by Nikola Jokic of the Nuggets? <laughs> I, I heard about it. I didn't see it. And people get mad at Jokic? And I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you, You're going to take the rich guy's side, the rich doofus, who won't give him the ball? There was generally a like, well, you can't do that. And then there were some people who were like, oh, if it hadn't been a white player, it would have been like, what? have we all lost our minds? Like, who's siding with the owner? Who who sides with the owner in these things? It's crazy. That dude was a jerk for not giving him the ball. And then when he got shoved, he flopped. He flopped.
0: Oh. Did, he get, did he get called for it?
1: He, he, he didn't get. Jokic got teed up. Oh, they should, they should have and called it. They should have called the owner say they for the should flop. Um, uh, this is this is stole because I, I had already told you that uh, this week's audio is not from an airport, but this it ties into the Jokic thing. This, Christian, is the single best answer I've heard from any athlete in the past year to a question. And it involves the exact Matt Ishpia, who's the son's dork owner, who was holding the ball, wouldn't give it to Jokic. Jokic tried to grab it. It gets flung around, and then, like, Jokic kind of just puts his forearm in the chest of the Suns owner, who then flops. He's being asked after the game why he felt why Jokic thought he should be able to grab the ball from the fan. And I, I just want to hear you'd hear the pure derision in Jokic's answer.
0: Why did you take it upon yourself to retrieve the ball? What? Why did you take it upon yourself to retrieve the ball? The, the referee could have retrieved the ball.
1: Because Okoji was on the ground and we had an advantage 5-4. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> Because the, the, the dude the dude from the Suns was on the ground, so they had an advantage 5-on-4, which is why he wanted the ball. But just listen, like the pure amount of, what? of anger. Like, <laughs> he just says it to him.
0: Why did you take it upon yourself to retrieve the ball? What? Why did you take it upon yourself to retrieve the ball? The, the referee could have retrieved the ball. He's so irritated. Because
1: Okoji was on the ground, and we had an advantage 5-on-4. What? Big fan of that. Big fan of that response.
0: There's no like. Sometimes players will, will kind of uh, performatively respond that way, or, you know, they'll put they'll put on the irritation. That was that was genuine.
2: Yeah, (laughs) Just just looks at
0: him. He could could not believe he
1: had been asked that question. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean? Why? Yeah, Westbrook's a big one with the performative. What? Like that was that was that was pure antagonism, antagonism yeah. in its in, in its in its best and most potent form. What
0: you, this is has nothing to do with anything we've been we've been discussing. I promise we'll get to some Husky football stuff. But um, from a journalistic perspective, what, what do you think of the idea of newspapers or media outlets writing critically about local restaurants? And, and let's say not not the New York Times and not a a Michelin you know, five-star or whatever. I'm
1: generally of the opinion that unless it's an established business, that the idea of going somewhere and just panning what you get is poor form. I I understand the counter-argument to that, which is... You want to, you're doing a reader service and you're telling someone, don't go to this restaurant. I also feel it's such a narrow slice of time, though, that you an opportunity that you get to taste something. And if you really don't like a place, write about somewhere you do like. Like that, that's generally, and that's aside from there has been a recent push, especially to eviscerate restaurants. And I I mean, I even, I know like the story that started it and it's happened a couple times in Seattle. Um, the, the restaurant critic at the New York Times, there's a steakhouse called Peter Luger's Steakhouse that is very, very famous. It's just over the Brooklyn Bridge. And, and, and the New York Times restaurant critic gave it zero stars, like just destroyed. Like it's a New York institution and he just eviscerated it. And now you've seen a number of local restaurant reviewers do something similar. It happened in the Seattle Times with regard to Wild Ginger. And I know what's going on, which is that the restaurant reviewers have seen you get a great deal of attention by doing that. And they can make a point that they want to make about something. I'm like, is that really, is that, is that really what, what a restaurant review is supposed to be? Like it, it feels, it feels hollow to me, but, but I also, I recognize that there is another side to that. um, And that I'm not necessarily right.
0: I bring it up because there was, there was a, and, and this was not in the category of the the full-on evisceration or you know i just i hate this place it's awful and i'm going to tell people like it just sucks never go there but there was a uh, a review in the tacoma news tribune in the last couple of days i won't say the restaurant or who wrote it cause it doesn't you know, it doesn't matter i'm not trying to turn this into like a bash fest or anything but it it was um it was of the i would say the premier steakhouse in tacoma probably in all of pierce county um i've only been to it once Thought it was amazing. I actually thought it was like pretty reasonably priced too for what it is. And the review was very much. Um, it, to me, it felt more like going to the place that is packed. Every every table's packed every night. You can't get a reservation any fewer than a couple of days out, unless you want to eat at nine thirty or something. And 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 trying to knock it down a peg. You know, or trying to kind of demystify, like, ah, this place isn't that great. Everyone talks, this place is always packed, and you can't get a table, and everyone talks about how great it is. But actually, you know, it's not... And It wasn't a full-on takedown, but it was like, I think for people, especially people who are familiar with the News Tribune's history of of food coverage, um, it definitely was, like, the closest thing to a takedown that you're probably going to see. And I, I thought, you know, am I being too precious about, you know, my kind of mid-sized town preferences and, and, and food joints, or is this just completely unnecessary and unfair? See, I kind of look at it the way that, that I look at tipping. I'll pretty much never withhold a tip. Um, and I'll tip the same percentage or the same amount, you know, in basically any circumstance, maybe the waiter was a little rude or they didn't come around as much as you wanted, or they, you know, it took 15 minutes to flag them down to get another drink, whatever. Like, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, like, knock money off the t I'm, I'm one who will always kind of take their side, like, well, you know, they were busy, or everyone has a bad day. Does that mean that they deserve this less, you know, kind of thing? And I feel like mm-hmm. I would take a similar tack to restaurant reviews. Like, like you said, this was a the smallest sample size you can get, right? One meal. And I think this reviewer did go there more than, more than once. Um, But yeah, I, I don't know. I would, I would feel, I would just feel strange elevating my somewhat negative perspective of this place above all these people who go there regularly who say it's awesome. I would, I would just feel like, well, maybe I'm the one who's missing it, you know, Mm -hmm. or maybe I have a very, unique individual preference that this restaurant didn't satisfy. And I'm elevating that above the preference of the masses, which is that, you know, this place is awesome. So I don't know. I, I read it and it, it kind of just rubbed me the wrong way. Not necessarily even like that I've got some, you know, um, I'm some huge like fan of, of this restaurant. I've been there one time. I loved it. I would love to go back again. But um, I just the
1: style and the tact of it was just like,
0: Hmm. It was this needed.
1: So what's funny about this is that I, I feel very similarly, especially when it's a local place. I don't have any of that same defensiveness when somebody... Uh, Guy Fieri, welcome to Flavortown. He had a Times Square restaurant that just got eviscerated in the New York Times, like another one of these reviews that kind of went viral. F- felt zero zero sympathy about that right and that's not necessarily fair i mean it's i basically justify it by saying like a ah, guy fieri's rich he can take it like whatever and it probably was terrible and it's corporate food and all of that but it's funny the sort of double standards i have because i i completely agree with you about sort of how those things resonate when i read the review of wild ginger in the seattle times i was like okay i've eaten at wild ginger a bunch and and I can understand someone saying it's overrated. It's not bad food. And then there was a layer of, should the owners really be cooking and presenting Asian food? Which I was like, well, okay, if we're going to go that, like, should a non-Asian person be reviewing this restaurant like it is? Like, so I get, I get very defensive about it. What I think is funny, because we're both pretty much on the same page here, is that... You could kind of make the same sort of argument against the critiquing of athletic efforts, which I would say I probably do way more than you do, where it's there's a little bit of truth to that of like, yeah, I kind of do sort of pick at the nits of these extraordinary athletes in the NFL. Like where I'm sitting there and like, well, OK, this guy has reached the very top of his profession in a way that I could never imagine in what I do. But he's not quite as good as you think he is. So it's really it's I think we're all hypocrites to a certain degree when it comes to these things. And it's really interesting to sort of parse through why I'm more OK with sort of the critiquing of who I'm OK critiquing and who I get a little bit more hesitant, either reading a critique of them or providing a critique of them.
0: So this this is where I was going with this. The, there's a huge difference there in the two things that you describe the the athletes that you, whose performance you're nitpicking are multimillionaires who play their games on television in front of millions of people mm-hmm. now there's a whole different discussion to be had about college athletics right mm-hmm. now my, my when it, when it comes to criticizing performance my general rule has always been you you always start with the coaches right you always start with the people being paid you start mm-hmm. with the millionaires <laughs> that's that's where the accountability has to start and you're pretty much never going to see me like call out a college player or like directly criticize a college athlete's performance you know if the quarterback completes 30% of his passes and throws four picks there's you know there, there there's no two ways around that you just say it you know hey he just it was a bad game you know he played poorly he'd be the first to tell you he played poorly but you know i'm not going to write a column saying hey this this linebacker is just not you know this sophomore linebacker is just not cutting it they need to move on they need to bench him and get, you know whereas in the nfl i think that sort of thing is maybe a little more fair you're talking about a millionaire a professional they all kind of nail they 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 all kind of know the score
1: mm-hmm.
0: now there are even even in mid-sized cities you know restaurants that whose name doesn't ring out outside of those city limits who make a real nice living for themselves. They make good money, but they're not millionaires. Right. And their business and their livelihood could be materially harmed by a person with a platform going out and saying, hey, this place actually isn't as good as everyone thinks it is. Whereas you saying that, hey, the the Seahawks might not be getting the same version of Bobby Wagner is, is not going to materially harm Bobby Wagner or the Seahawks. And both parties know that that comes with the territory and you know you're you're not going to take a chunk out of his considerable career earnings by by writing something like that so that's to me that's the that's the difference you're right though because you, like i you know all it takes is is me to to you know pop my hamstring running out of the batter's box in a in a men's league softball game to realize, like, just how absurd it would be for me to ever be critical of the athletic efforts of a, uh, you know, another human being. Um, but it is kind; of, it's a little bit part of our job. Um, but yeah, yeah, I just I, I see that the major difference there is that what you write, and and that doesn't mean that you shouldn't still be, you know, really conscious and thoughtful and. Am I being fair? Am I considering every factor? You know, whenever you you criticize anything, not just not just sports, but the big difference is those guys are getting paid a, a lot of money and have been paid a lot of money. Whereas, you know, the restaurant owner, even even if they're successful and making a nice living, like if if optics change, if public opinion changes, <laughs> you know, that it's, that could harm their livelihood.
1: It's true. It's also, I would point out too, it's interesting who we concern ourselves with like whose feelings we take into account because I think very much on the same page with you when it comes to college athletes I don't ever want to blame or come off as telling a college athlete hey this player needs to play better it's not his job to perform better like he he should play as much up to his capabilities as possible and if he's not if, if there are opponents who are more talented than him, that's on the coaches for not being able to recruit better players. It's not on him for not being a better player. Um, and then it gets, but, but you're right. Like someone like Bobby Wagner, I look at it, it's like he's had an established career. My opinion is going to impact him less. And, and those, like who we take into account, because with a restaurant v- review, you could also look at it and say, hey, I'm sticking up for the consumer. I'm the person who's telling th- this 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 family that is that's going to be their one big night out all year is going to this specific restaurant, that it's probably not worth it that you could spend your money better elsewhere. And there's all sorts of projections that go along with that, like of like sort of, but if if that's if that's who your criteria is and who you're writing toward, I, I, could, I can see that, like being a valid defense of, of being critical, of, of even a local business that is putting everything it has into making it in, in the restaurant business is brutal. Like it's so freaking hard to have a successful restaurant. Um, but on the flip side, I also know, and this comes from a lot of, that when you're covering sports, there's a fan base that you can cater to that wants you to yell at players or coaches like there is you can make a living for yourself being someone who is the i'm gonna speak truth to power guy and just say really rude things and make really really harsh evaluations of players and coaches and i think that's the cheapest form of criticism, like I really, I, I, I have no respect for someone who is, is sort of. I, I think of them as like a puffer fish that just like blows themselves up into a significance that's completely, like belies what they actually are, and they're just like little rage monsters who are like. There was a question to Giannis Antetokounmpo after: Do you consider this season a failure? And it became kind of its own little news cycle, but that's the sort of question where it's like you're appealing to the guy who wants to get mad at the player, like. And a good conversation came out of that question, but the question at its own is is appealing to that that sort of corner of fans who who want to get mad at the players.
0: So Jeff Perlman is a a longtime sports journalist and an author. He's got a book out about Bo Jackson. He's written about. Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds and the USFL and a uh, number of other topics. And he hosts a a, a weekly podcast where he has a, a guest on. It's often a sports writer, um, sometimes an author, always a, a writer of some kind. And he said something once that really resonated and that hopefully I, I already tried to approach the job this way even before. Like I had a kid, but this is a few years ago. I heard him on an episode say like he every once in a while will read – a column by someone, usually something that's highly critical of another person, and he'll finish it and think, wow, that person writes like they don't have kids.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: And it's not to suggest that there is some lack of virtue in not being a parent or not having kids. It's just there are some people who who write about other people without any consideration for like who they are as a person. And Mm -hmm. I feel like if you always, if you approach any topic, no matter, even if you're writing about someone who has just objectively done like awful things or has like inflicted harm on other people, I feel like you're, you're never going to go wrong in terms of whether you're treating the subject fairly. If you approach it as if with, you know, with the conscious thought in mind that this person has parents, this is somebody's kid. You know, and and their parents or their family or whoever is going to read this, and that doesn't mean you go soft on a person where the opposite is warranted. But I, it, you talk about the rage monsters and the people who cater to that portion of the fan base who just want you to be a dick, frankly, and and you know want you—they're pissed and they're yelling and they're sending off reprehensible things on social media, and they want to see that reflected in the media they're consuming about the team too. I feel like. That's the, you know, those people forget that they're yelling at someone's child, you know, that's, and that I've always, I've always kind of tried to look at it that way, especially as I've gotten older and, you know, becoming a parent myself kind of builds it in. But I thought that was sort of an interesting way to put
1: it. Yeah. The question of respect and having a baseline of respect for the people you write about is a, is a really interesting question. Cause there are times that you, you have to be unflinchingly honest about when you see someone with ill intent with bad motivations, because that happens. It, it happens less in sports because we're talking about games and yes, people get hired and fired and there's, but it's ultimately games. Um, There's less, there's less like abject harm that comes from the things that we cover than from, if you write about social policy or those sort of things, but that baseline of respect and, and sort of trying to explain where someone's coming from, even, even if their actions don't create the result that that they hoped for or they wanted, I think is. I mean, that's part of being compassionate. It's it's very interesting that you brought this up. Um, I think I've talked some about this. I'm in the midst of writing what is it's it's a very personal story, um, creative nonfiction. It's about my relationship with my stepfather, which has been. I had a very difficult relationship with him when I was a teenager and then in my 20s it became okay but distant and then there was a pretty acrimonious sort of split between he and my mom and I'm very mad um, and have been very mad for very valid reasons for a number of years Um, and over since my mom died in 2019 I've started writing about it And I'm now pretty much through a first draft of something that sort of started out as writing about my three parents, my dad who died when I was much younger, 13, my mom who was a really, really lovely woman who had a really difficult life, um, and then my stepfather who's still alive and I had not talked to since 2005. And learning to sort of, Revise my relationship with him to let go of some of that anger. Which it's it's not catharsis because like I don't I don't think I don't think you should write out of anger. Like I think that's I think that's a I think that's a it's it produce it doesn't produce art. Like it produces sort of screeds and really and you angry end up regretting it. it. I I think that's true. I I know I have I, I've really rethought over the past really four years kind of how I deal with grudges and anger and processing that. Um, and some of that's come out in ways that I've talked about like with with a situation that I had with Dave Mahler, um, who I was mad at for a number of years and I'm no longer mad at. And then there's at the core of it is this very, very personal relationship that I have with my stepfather. Um, I'm talking to him again. I'm probably going to go see him at some point this year. Um, and like I said, I'm I'm pretty much through a draft of what is a book, but it's, it's a really interesting question of what, why you write and what can be gained from sort of letting go of some of that anger. Cause what I found is that like writing about it while I was angry was a way for me to process it, but it wasn't. It wasn't worth anyone else reading. It was for me. But now I think I've actually gotten to a place where I think writing about someone who I I do have anger toward in a very justifiable way. But I don't feel that anger in the same way. And I'm more curious about him in some ways. So it's a really... It's interesting that we're talking about this because I've spent a lot of time sort of thinking about it. And I just finished the chapter where I kind of went... In the the structure of the book would be the climax where I kind of reached this realization that the anger that I was carrying toward my stepfather was influencing the way I dealt with conflict in other areas of my life in ways that I didn't see. The way I, I would fixate on like there was one specific troll who bothered the hell out of me, like in a way that was completely disproportionate from the impact he was having on my life. To a lesser extent, the whole thing with Softy, although that's more humorous than anything else, but other things that were much more that I was having a hard time. So it, it's it's interesting to to think about the goals that we have when we write for an audience, because I and I really do feel that writing out of anger for an audience is one of the cheapest and sort of least meaningful expressions. It's just it's just. It's your it's your unrestrained id. Like it's a teenage like a teenager or a toddler throwing a tantrum and it's it's totally disposable and it's it's probably not fair to the person that's that, that you're targeting.
0: Yeah, it uh it reminds me of and yeah, you know, I'm sure she didn't invent this and other people have used it as a tactic too, but she's the one who introduced it to me. My mom um when I was growing up would say like if you're really angry at someone and you want to, this is back in the days of, you know, pre email or whatever, like sit down and write out, you know, write the angry letter and, and put it in the desk and never send it or throw it mm-hmm. away, tear it, tear it up and throw it away and never send it. And you'll be amazed that how often like that's enough, you know? Yeah. So.
1: Yeah. It's fascinating. Know. And then, and then sometimes, sometimes it's not like, so for with my stepdad and we'll move off of this cause nobody, but, So with my stepdad, I did that for 15, yeah, like a solid 15 years where it's like, okay, he hasn't, he hasn't really reached out to me or apologized to me. Like all of these things that have happened and I'm not going to say anything like, and I didn't do anything like there were opportunities where I could have like sort of taken revenge. But what I found is like, it didn't, my anger didn't go away and writing it down and like not sending it is a really like effective way to essentially process it. But like for me that didn't, that wasn't enough, but having a, having an understanding and an an ability to find your way to the other side of that anger is a really like for me, it's been, I, I would go so far as to say like a life changing sort of realization of how to be able to do that. It's changed the way that I handle my relationships in a lot of other places.
0: That's good, so when when you go to a steakhouse and the experience is not what it should be, you'll be a little you know a little softer a little more we're gonna we're gonna process this properly
1: maybe or you know what I might be like this
2: we are in we are in a tin can with a baby in a goddamn echo chamber and you want to talk to me about being. Okay, okay, because you're, you're yelling. So is, is the baby. Okay, so so is the baby. baby. <laughs> <laughs> oh my
0: goodness! One, one last thing on this, and I promise we'll move on. Do you watch Ted Lasso?
1: I do. Yes.
0: So, and I won't spoil too. I'll, I'll, I'll keep this like this plot point vague, um, so as not to give away spoilers for people who haven't watched this season. But there's a there's a character who who played had a long great, successful career um, in the Premier League. And he, he has this grudge against a, a, a journalist in the show. Mm-hmm. And you don't really know why, what's his problem. They finally have it out, and he, he cites this like brief, this paragraph that he wrote about him when he was 18, 19 years old. Really highly critical of, his, of, of him as a player and his prospects as a, as a professional. And he just tells them like, man, like this wrecked me when I read this, you know, like this just, this just gutted me. And I think it's, and they apologize and it's great and happy, touchy feely like the, like the show is, but it it's a, it's a reminder. And like that thing, that's a real thing. It's a reminder that like these Six, three muscular dudes wearing, you know, gladiator uniforms that you watch on TV on Saturdays and Sundays, like, still have those feelings and see and hear way more of what you write and say about them than you might assume. I think that's like, especially young journalists starting out, you're just thinking, well, I'm just, I'm writing for the people who pick up the paper, you know, I'm writing for my friends or my family. Like, this is, this is separate, you know, this is like, that person lives their life and plays their game on t v and I do this, and those two things don't don't intersect, but actually they really do, and like that person has a family too, and all those things so i just I saw that scene and thought like yeah that's that's a that's a real thing
1: Jim moore and it, over the course of his writing career and i I love jim's writing style, like Jim's one of my favorite writers to read has written things that have angered a number of the athletes that he's covered. And I'm not going to say like it's invalid or not. Like those guys getting mad, like everybody's entitled to their own response. The thing that has always amused the hell out of me is that Jim remains adamantly confused and just perplexed. He doesn't know why any one of those guys would take anything that he writes seriously. (laughs) Like at the core of it, like where he's like, He's like, so you didn't like it. So why do you care what I wrote? (laughs) It's really funny. And it's not from a place of arrogance or a like you should be above this. (laughs) It's It's the opposite of arrogance. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. It's just like, boy, if I was you, I wouldn't care, (laughs) (laughs) which is totally true.
0: And I I think that's that's like where the justification comes from for a lot. I'm not talking about Jim specifically, but for a lot of people, that's where the justification comes from. Right. Like, well, I'm I'm just little old me. You know, I'm not. I'm I'm going home to my you know maybe my my studio apartment or whatever and I'm I'm 23 years old scraping paychecks together like what do you yeah what do you care I'm I'm nobody you know I'd trade places with you in a heartbeat I'd trade financial situations with you in a heartbeat so wh- why can't I say this you know and and you just you you realize like you cut all that away and and another person is is disseminating something about you publicly that you disagree with or that you think is mean or that like maybe hits on a sore spot for you in a way that no one else would understand why it's a sore spot. I mean, for a million different reasons, like all that other stuff falls away and, and people are people at the end of it. And it does, you know, somebody, somebody takes offense to something you write. Like, yeah, it's not an objective analysis of like, well, let me examine my place in the world and this person's place in the world and yeah, actually, you know, you're right. I shouldn't, I shouldn't care what you say or think or write.
1: <laughs> it's a funny world we live in, man. A very, very funny world.
0: One person who uh, I, I, I think I was thinking about this on Tuesday because, or no, Monday, I think it was. So the Huskies got a a commitment from a four star offensive lineman, Pocky Fee, now in their 2024 class. Guy they'd been on for a while, and I think was was kind of considered a a Husky lean, but was going to take some visits um, and, and wound up just committing. I assume those visits aren't happening now, but it got me to thinking about um, what kind of a, a redemptive year or at least last like seven to 10 months. It's been for Scott Huff, Washington's offensive line coach who I think a lot of people would have been totally fine if he hadn't been retained when Kalen DeBoer took over. The 2021 season was super, super hyped up by Jimmy Lake, I mean, no position more so than the offensive line. They're going to have the best offensive line in the Pac-12, bar none. They're going to be this big physical team and run the ball and all this. And they really underperformed. They they couldn't run it. They didn't protect the passer very well. Um, for what they were they were supposed to be, they fell well short of expectations. And in that 2022 class that year, you also had – A five-star offensive lineman at Rainier Beach, Josh Connerly, who wound up going to Oregon. Four other in-state offensive linemen who they offered, not all of them who they pursued heavily, but a couple they did. One of them, Vega Ioane from Graham Kapausen, was committed to them for a long time, wound up flipping to Penn State. They end up signing none of the in-state O-linemen they offered or or went after. And so you've got this underperforming group on the field, followed by a total whiff in state with recruiting. And there were a lot of people who were done with Scott Huff and we had Jackson Kirkland on the podcast and, and he, he referenced that. Speaking of these guys see and read and hear a lot more than you think he, you know, he knew, he knew what the vibe was coming out of that year. He knew that, that people would have been fine with him moving on. Um, And, and then last year happens, you know, and it starts with Kalen DeBoer and Ryan Grubb coming in and choosing to retain an offensive line coach who neither of them had ever worked with in this position that was really, that's, you know, Ryan Grubb was an offensive line coach for a long time. So he gets it. And, you know, I think there's, I saw a quote from Jeff Tedford when he hired Kalen DeBoer to be his offensive coordinator at Fresno state, that he actually had an O-line coach in mind, but DeBoer was insistent on Grubb. And he thought, well, I know how important it is for the O.C., and the O line coach to be on the same page. So, if he's got a guy he feels really strongly about, I'm going to let him make that call and bring his guy. And that was how Ryan Grubb got to Fresno State um, as, as the O line coach. So, I would assume Grubb kind of has a similar approach, similar philosophy that, like, hey, this, you know, we're not just going to stick any old assistant in, in that O line coach job. That's got to be someone I'm really on. So, the fact that he was willing to retain Scott Huff straight away. I think spoke volumes about you know his own his own perception versus what the fan perception was, and he said it he said it on the record last November you know late in the season that like they really felt like 2021. If you examine Scott Huff's body of work, they felt like the 2021 season on the field was an anomaly, and that this you know the way that the O line performed that season. And the, he didn't go so far as to say, you know, within that scheme for that offensive coordinator, but I think, you know, we can connect those dots. That was, was not, was not emblematic of who they thought he was as a coach.
1: I would have been very much on the sort of, I would, didn't care if Scott Huff came back or not. Like it was not, that was not important to me. Um, I would have probably <laughs> like all things being equal said, let's just have a clean break To me, to me, the biggest sort of red flag that went up in that season clearly was the fact that they couldn't move the ball on the ground against Montana. That's that, that should be the biggest difference when you play a lower division team is that you should have an advantage up front and they couldn't move. They, they couldn't push Montana off the ball. What was it about what John Donovan was doing that, that made it, the, the offensive line so in effect. Like, what, what do you think happened? It's so perplexing.
0: Yeah, I think it was, in terms of the run game specifically, it was probably just a, a square peg round hole deal uh-huh. where they were going to do it one way, even though the athletic traits of your offensive linemen suggested that you should probably be doing it a different way. You should probably yeah. be moving those guys, pulling those guys, getting them out in space. Giving them the opportunity to, to 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 move their feet and square guys up, I know late and it gets lost because it just didn't matter as a lost season. But I know late in that season, after Junior Adams had taken over as the interim offensive coordinator, I remember Jackson Kirkland talking about. Cause remember they lost that was that first game against Arizona State when Jimmy Lake was just was still just suspended. That was the game he was suspended for. He hadn't been fired yet, and they I think they got out to a fourteen nothing lead and. The offense looked a little a little different. You know, there weren't going to be wholesale changes, but they were just they were approaching it differently. And I think Jackson Kirkland talked after that game about how, yeah, like they they were running the ball more outside, running more outside zone, I think, and mm-hmm. not just trying to bash it between the tackles. And when Ryan Grubb came in after Kalen DeBoer was hired, he talked about that too. That he thought there were some things in the run game where they could take better advantage of the athletes they had on the offensive line, and. It, you know, give them more give them more solutions than just we're gonna line up and try to bash our heads in a, you know, four by four box against the other D line and, you know, it's gonna work because er, we're bigger and tougher and stronger, you know. I I think that was the game plan under John Donovan and, you know, maybe maybe that was more of a Jimmy Lake thing, a Jimmy Lake edict than you know, is that oh. is that exactly the way John Donovan would have done it? I don't know.
1: The guy um, with the run the damn ball hat was insistent upon yeah. a certain approach.
0: Maybe, 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 maybe would have been uh, coming from the top there. But uh.
1: Uh, so the offensive line coach is basically like the hitting coach in baseball in which they're the sacrificial lamb. Like they're the person they are designated to be the, the thing that people, the gap in knowledge between what they see on the field and what they think is happening. Like there's no bigger gap. Then add offensive line, like all of the other even even defensive line, which is there's a similar sort of people don't really know what what they're criticizing like offensive line is by far the most like I, I just, just don't get sacked just gain yards like there's no there's no understanding of technique or, or even to a certain extent people will get scheme and what is a zone a, a, what a zone blocking scheme is or what sort of an outside. At running outside a stretch those are but they don't they don't really understand sort of the nuances of line play but man will they blame an offensive line coach right like yeah the, the offensive line coach is outside of the two coordinators and i would say in some cases even ahead of the two coordinators is the person that gets offered up head on a pike uh to to make a statement about not liking how a team played
0: yeah and I think especially with Scott Huff, there was some, you know, there was, there was some history, right? There, there was a, a track record there and it's not like their O lines had been like amazing or like dominant or anything, but they were, you know, what, what, what happened with Nick Harris, you know, this guy. And, and that was Huff didn't recruit him, but he coached him, you know, for, was that the majority of his career? Yeah. For his last three mm-hmm. seasons. Um, so he 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 had developed guys, you know. The I think did always did a good job of like identifying who the center should be. It, it wasn't always, you know. They haven't put guys at that position as, as true freshmen, you know, at, at third fourth string, and then they move their way up. You know, he would kind of. Year to year, okay. This guy's moving on. Who's who's the you know who's best suited for this position? And you know they they tried to move Jackson Kirkland around to maximize his potential. And I, I've always thought he was he's been pretty creative with his personnel. It's a results based business. He was paid very well in 2021, and the results were what they were. So if if Kalen DeBoer and Ryan Grubb had come in and decided to go a different way, you know you can't say that that's unfair, but. Um, the the that year, coupled with the 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 bad recruiting class, I don't even say it was a bad recruiting class because they they it, it was that they missed on a lot of guys. You know, There's some guys right in their backyard who uh, would have would have upgraded the roster a little bit. So those were those were misses for sure. Um, but he gets retained. They have the season that they had in 2022, and Grubb is like fully backing him. I mean, before it's even been shown, I remember asking him about the the play of the O-line, you know, my first interview, first time I ever met Ryan Grubb about the O-line and, you know, is the expectation for them to be better. And he's like, you know, obviously we think they can play better, but I didn't see very many running backs breaking tackles either. You know, you turn on the tape, I don't see running backs making guys miss. And I know what our expectations were at Fresno State. And you didn't see that. So it's, you know, basically kind of having Scott Huff's back that like it wasn't all the O-line. There was There was a little bit more to the equation and said, like, last March that he thought they could be elite in pass protection, which was like, wow, Did uh, after the 12 games we all just watched, you know, that's... And then they were. They literally were. They were one of the best teams in the country of protecting the passer. So he, he, he had his back from the start. The results fully backed that up. Um, I think this, you know, they were confident that they had a scheme that... uh that would maximize the strengths of of the O line and not just you know try to force them to play a certain way you know regardless of of what the bodies were or what the what the skills and the traits looked like, and then Scott Huff had a great twenty twenty three recruiting cycle. They they keep Landon Hatch at home, who's you know was one of the best like pure center prospects in the country. Wound up being a, a four star recruit. They get uh, Elisha Jacket, you know, who's big. He looks like a. a you know, future, you know, potential early round tackle, at least in terms of his frame, he winds up being a four-star recruit. Um, And then this 2024 class is off to, off to a pretty good start with a a four-star recruit in the boat. So it just seems like there was like this blip in Scott Huff's resume as a position coach from like the first week of September, 2021 through that February signing day that had people like ready to move on. And, all that's happened since then has just kind of been a a redemption story and you know you're not going to set any traffic or clicks records talking about the redempt the the redemptive nature of of the program's offensive line coach but i just it, that that's what i was thinking about when i saw that commitment come in i just thought wow you know there a lot of people would have been totally fine with this guy not not having a job at washington anymore and um he he's all he's done is prove the the new coaching staff, right for retaining him.
1: That should temper or sort of give us a reason to look back and say, maybe don't overreact. Like maybe, maybe that sort of knee jerk, the appeal to anger. Someone's got to pay head on a pike. It's kind of what we've been talking about in terms of criticism that you're better off tempering that and looking at it as part of a bigger picture is, is this the outlier? Is this the exception? Here's the other thing. Like kudos to DeBoer and Grubbs specifically for being able to see that. I think it's one of the most telling things when a coaching staff that comes in and new, when they decide to retain someone who doesn't necessarily have a connection to them, that's not yeah. part of it. Like when, when there's a regime turnover and they're like, no, we're going to, we're going to keep this guy. Um, and you can tell a lot of when that, that coach ends up, sort of becoming or sort of becoming part of their core going forward that that's, it reflects a little bit of humility of looking at it and saying like, Hey, I don't have to come in and reinvent the wheel. Like this isn't, this is, th- this is not a complete rebuild job of like, there's, there's, there's talent here. There's, there's quality here. Um, as opposed to I'm coming in to lift everything up because how you've done it here before, what I consider to be the Charlie Weiss approach after reading Charlie Weiss's wonderful (laughs) book, which is the sort of like, whatever you did here before wasn't good enough. And it's a new day and a new era being able to recognize the talents of people that are there before and who can help you accomplish your goal. Like, I think that's a really, a really positive sign. I know when Pete Carroll became the Seahawks head coach, there was a, a huge turnover in the coaches, and a lot of the coaches that got let go were really mad about how that happened. But Pete offered, kept Dan Quinn, he kept Gus Bradley, and he, and he offered a job to Mike Solari, who had been the offensive line coach, who ended up not staying on. He ended up moving there, but solari someone who still has moved around the league. Those were, those are the three best coaches on that coaching staff. Like he he kept the right guys it was a pretty accurate assessment of the quality of the coaches, which is really what you want from your head coach is the, the ability he has to understand who is going to do the best job on his staff.
0: I haven't written this yet. So this is yet another example of me talking, uh, talking my column out on our, on our podcast here. So you, you're, if you're listening to this, uh, you're, you're hearing, you're hearing part of my process for, uh, for pulling my thoughts together for this.
1: They already already heard my book. So yeah,
0: It doesn't, it it points back to the old, the old cliche about, uh, e- e- coaches might say it about an assistant who they're firing, even as they're firing them that like, look, you know, he didn't forget how to coach. Right. It's, we need it we just feel like we need a new energy a new direction. You know, and I think there is something too. like, and at college, it's kind of weird to say this cause there's so much turnover and guys aren't with a, you know, a, a position coach who stays at a school for a decade it doesn't have anybody, any individual player for longer than three or four years, probably. But there's still, I think is some element of you just, you, you just need a different guy telling, telling everybody what to do. And I was talking about this with somebody about strength coaches in particular, about how like, like the Ron McKee you, super highly regarded, respected, you know, no question that he's a, a, high, a highly competent strength and conditioning coach, but like, what's he doing that's so much better than Tim Saha, who was also a highly respected, highly regarded strength and conditioning coach? Did he he just forget how to do it? Did he, did he stop telling him to lift weights? You know, like, I don't think so. So what was, you know, what was wrong with him when, and because when he came in, it was, oh my God, he's so much better than Ivan Lewis, you know, like, oh, all all Ivan Lewis cared about was this. And Tim Saha is all about this. And now it's like, oh, well, before they cared about this, but now Ron McKeefree, he cares about this. And I think some of it is every now and then you just need someone different in that room. You just need someone else telling guys what to do because they get kind of it. Everybody's sort of got a shelf life. So, but I, I do think that that's one cliche that is very true. Like coaches don't forget how to coach. You know, the circumstances might change. Maybe they didn't get along with the offensive coordinator, or maybe they had something going on in their life for eight months that isn't going on now, or you know, whatever it is. And and you know the good head coaches evaluate those situations objectively and ask themselves what's the right thing for the program and not just like what's what punishment does this coach deserve for this season that just happened because that doesn't matter that's nothing that's that's never how you should like you know I remember I remember kind of getting into into this late in the Lorenzo Romar era where it was like you just can't keep your job if you go two and sixteen you just can't you can't you, you have to. And it's like, well, but it's still possible that the best thing for the program is to retain him for another season. Mm -hmm. And that's all you should be considering is what's the right thing for the program going forward and not just like, okay, this horrible season that you just had, what punishment do you need to administer to the head coach? And I, I feel like that, if cutting Scott Huff loose based on his track record and based on, you know, if they had come in and evaluated, well... Geez, his film, you know, their O-line film from the previous three years actually looks pretty good, and he's developed some guys, and he's recruited really well, and there's a lot of talent on this team, actually. Like, Jackson Kirkland's an all-conference guy, and Henry Bainavalu's gotten better, and boy, this Troy Fautanu kid looks really good, really athletic, and there's Roger Rosengarten, this four-star guy that they had to beat out Oregon for. He looks like he could start, you know, this, you know, geez, there's some guy, but... ah. They were so bad last year, like, we just got to get rid of him. Yeah, you know? that's just, that, that's not how objective, competent leaders operate.
1: The baby in the bathwater?
0: Yeah, yeah. He was the baby. You don't baby. want to
1: throw out the baby in the bathwater?
0: <laughs> Boy, they, they drain the bathwater as quickly as you can, but they kept that baby.
1: Uh, I wonder how long it's been since there's actually been a baby tossed out with the bathwater.
0: Yeah. Perhaps mistakenly.
1: I, I think it's gotta be a hundred years ago. I do imagine that's something that happened in New York. That seems like something that would happen in the, the lawless environs of like turn of the century New York.
0: <laughs> yeah, the drains uh drains are too small nowadays. You wouldn't make that mistake.
1: Well, I think it's because they tossed it out the window. Like get rid right, of the bathwater yeah. by fling it out the window and like,
0: ah, there's a baby. No, I want to go in newspapers.com and see if this was just like a common thing that was reported back in the day. <laughs> Should we get to dude? Ian?
1: Yeah, we will get to Ian. Do you remember the dude uh, in Philadelphia who like there was a fire and somebody tossed the child out to save him and the guy caught the baby as he was thrown. And as he's being interviewed on the news about it, he looks at the camera and he made a reference to like, not like Nelson Aguilar oh, yes. and all them. Passes. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Aguilar.
0: <laughs> I remember Nelson Aguilar got on Twitter after that and like offered the guy tickets.
1: <laughs> like what? What did I do? Talk about catching a stray? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. All right. It's time for it's worth a conversation with Ian McFarland. And this week's question, he gives us a little bit he's got a little bit of a plug for ipmcfarland.com. Here you go. Here's Ian.
2: Morning, guys. I uh, am amazed that both of you continue to find topics post spring practice that I want to click on because
1: Ian's sucking up to both of us here. I I just want to pause and pull like it was after he last week
2: because he feels bad after last week
1: because <laughs> last week he said for once I'm going to compliment Danny so now he's trying to he's trying to be very very fair going forward. Okay, back to Ian.
2: I have to ask one question a week, and I was up all night trying to think of it. So I decided to go shameless self-promotion and and talk about what we do, which is put the right person in place for your organization to either grow your business or staff some of those key positions and leadership within your sales organization. So on that tone, most business owners, and I know I do, keep a list of people that, given the opportunity and the right situation, they want to hire, very similar to an athletic director having that list of three names should their coach ever disappear. So who on the University of Washington roster would be your first hire? Let's just make it a sales job. Could be right after they're finished with school. Could be after they get through playing football, maybe professionally. But who is your first hire and why? Welcome to the offseason, guys. Have a good mm. week. For a sales job.
0: Maybe I shouldn't get bogged down in the specifics because he just kind of threw it out. I think he's more. I think he's more wondering, like, based on your interactions, like mm-hmm. who strikes you as most like employee ready.
1: Yeah, like who's a guy that you're like? I I think that guy's going to be capable of some things going forward. I want to. C- yeah. I want to keep in touch with him.
0: Man, I mean, there's a number of guys who, you know, I'm confident will be successful post football whenever that comes. Romo Dunze is one of the first who comes to mind. Um, you know, Dylan Morris, Edifuan Ulifoscio, Michelle Powell, Asa Turner, um Fatui Tuatele. I'm just I'm thinking of guys who I, in conversations with coaches and people around the program and other players, like the guys whose names come up the most when you're talking about, okay, who's, who's the, who who's in that first group of players at the facility every morning mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of that like five to 6 a.m. club. And so those are the, like, Yula Foscio and Dylan Morris are two who, that those names come up a lot in those conversations who's who's already conditioned to put in the work as part of their DNA not because uh well I mean, I'm going to get I'm going to get in trouble if I don't if I don't get this lift done or I'm going to get in trouble if I'm late or well I guess I guess I'll I'll watch film cuz you know I don't want to get left behind or whatever but who it's just it's just in them they they don't know any other way than to you know the the the, the NFL work ethic the pro work ethic that's a term that gets thrown out a lot um, in reference to Romo Dunze, I think he's always had that, that mentality and it, it's striking how those guys are almost always really good students too, because it, and it goes back to one of Kalen, DeBoer's principles of, you know, how you, how you do anything, how you, how you, how you do, <laughs> I'm going to screw it up, <laughs> fool me once, um, how, how you do anything is how you do everything. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was a Chris Peter, I think Chris Peterson put it like how you do small things is how you do all things. And I'm sure most coaches have a different variation of that. Right. That that's the idea of going one and oh. like if you're, if, if you're, you you approach every task, like it's just as important as any other task, you're going to be squared away in your whole life type of thing. And so that there's, you know, those, those names are are kind of the first ones that come to mind. Certainly. I don't mean to suggest that those are like the only ones on the roster, but those guys jump out to me for sure.
1: Rome is a very interesting one because I do tend to subscribe to the idea that certain positions make, they're just more, they groom guys to look at the world differently. Like I think backup quarterbacks, if you were asking me what position would you pick to be your coach, like backup quarterback is almost always, like it is the most consistent sort of incubator for coaches. And I think there are reasons for that. The importance of offense, that guy spends a lot of time getting the starter ready. Like there's, there's there's a certain amount that comes with that. If starting quarterbacks in the NFL made less money over the course of their careers, would you see more starters continue to be head coaches? I'm not sure. But backup quarterbacks, like there's definitely, they they amass this wealth of knowledge about the most complicated position in the game. And because of that, they know about so many different things. Wide receiver is never regarded as that, ever. Like, wide receiver is seen as, I mean, the stereotype is of it as a diva position. Um, And you kind of end up becoming more of an extrovert because you have to demand that the quarterback, putting pressure on the quarterback to throw you the ball is actually helpful. Like, that's actually something that can increase your performance, in addition to just being wildly athletic and being able to get open. Rome is one of the most unique college athletes that I've come across. And I don't have a ton of exposure to him. I've talked to him. We interviewed him here on the podcast. And I've I've heard him talk in a couple of other settings where it wasn't just a one-on-one interview. He is remarkably poised. Like it's not, when I say confident, it's not in terms of like, sort of the, the general confidence that's associated with a wide receiver, which is I'm the best guy on the field and you should tr- throw me the ball because it's always open. He's really comfortable with himself. Like really, like strikingly. Um, and really, I, I am, I, I'm not surprised he has an interest in doing, in doing media and I think he'd be exceptionally good at it. But I'll be, I'll be really interested to see not just how he performs in the NFL because I think he could have an incredible career but but what he does what he does going forward like i've really really enjoyed sort of getting a chance to kind of watch him the other guy and this is someone who i have not i've never heard him interviewed i don't think i don't think i've ever heard him interviewed i am fascinated by richard newton and it's not just because i love the way he runs that dude has stuck with the program like he's not transferred which is shocking to me, given the way that his playing time at a couple of different points yo-yoed, and certainly kind of considering the injuries, like the perseverance to come back from the injuries that he's suffered is really remarkable. I'm really interested in sort of the psychological makeup of because I think that kid must be incredibly freaking tough. we we talk about that and there's nobody that's soft that plays football, but the toughness to come back from those injuries and to not leave when like, there was one year where he looked like he was their best back. And then all of a sudden he just kind of was in the doghouse and maybe he was hurt or maybe he wasn't. He stayed with the program. Like I'm fascinated by what his psychological makeup must be like.
0: Yeah. I haven't talked to him a ton uh, a few times here and there. Um, he's he seems like a pretty tough dude and i do think that that stuff translates you know cuz it's um it's it's one thing to be physically tough and be you yeah. know have a have a high pain tolerance or be able to play through pain or but when you've gone through the process of rehabbing after a major surgery and and rehabbing where you know you're targeting a date like i'm trying to get back by this date not to you know, just walk normal without a limp, not to just, you know, I'm I'm 43 years old and I, I I need to recover from this knee injury so I can play with my kids and type of thing. But to return to playing the very violent sport that caused this injury in the first place, um, that's really, really hard. And I, there's a mental toll and a mental piece to that, that that I think gets overlooked a lot of times. And I do think athletes who have gone through that are prepared for toughness required of you, of you in the real world um you know what which is a funny term right whatever like whatever mm-hmm. reality you're living when you wake up in the morning is your real world just cuz you're in college playing a sport doesn't mean that's not the real world it's very different than the life you're going to live once you're done with it but it's all the real world right um i i do think that that prepares you for the inevitable disappointment and failure and delayed gratification that comes with just existing as a human being on planet earth, even if you're a, a, a generally successful, happy one, you know,
1: am I, am I misreading? Like you just heard my sort of outsiders analysis of, of, of his career. Does that, does that generally sort of correlate with what you've seen from his career? Am I reading it wrong?
0: No, I I think it does. And like, it would have been, I mean, most guys would have left last year. You know, I'm coming off of a season-ending injury. I'm mm-hmm. not going to be able to practice all spring. He did he wasn't even back like it took him a while into fall camp. Yep. This new coaching staff doesn't know me. Has never seen me practice, let alone play other than what they have on film. And they've added three transfer running backs. <laughs> yeah. I'm out of here. You know? Yeah. Like what what chance do I have of playing? But he stuck it out and he impressed them enough that he got some carries last year and probably would have had more if he hadn't, he got a concussion against Arizona state, which, which tripped him up. But clearly like Ryan Grubb, Ryan Grubb went into it like, all right, you know, all these guys are going to have to show me something. Cause I think we know he wasn't real impressed with the running back tape from 2021 and then they weren't available for spring. That's not their fault. They were hurt, but it was very much like, all right, we're going to go get our guys. And, you know, you guys who are here who haven't practiced, going to have to gonna have to have show us something, going to have to earn it. But that was, I don't think that he had a bias against them because Cam Davis, boom, became their number two guy and he hadn't practiced mm-hmm. either. Richard Newton wasn't even available for day one of fall camp yet still impressed them with his physicality and they, they left themselves open to be impressed by it, right? Rather than, they could have easily said, well, look, we got Wayne Talapapa, Cam Davis has, has started to show up. Will Nixon's here. Sam Adams has developed. Like you know, the fine, whatever. But they gave him some opportunities. They gave him some series. Um, I, I think he, I think he would have had more carries if, if not for that concussion at ASU, because he was, he really was, he was like in a rhythm that happened on a drive where he ripped off like three ten plus yard carries. So, um, and then yeah, this year, you know, this year is going to be tough. He's banged up again and. No spring, so it's gonna it's gonna be tough, but hey, he, he did it last year. And we'll you know, we'll we'll see.
1: I'm rooting for him. I guess that's no secret to anybody here, <laughs> like I'm the number one Richard <laughs> Newton fan.
0: I'm trying to think of guys in particular who'd be good at sales. I feel like it because that that's that's like a very specific skill set.
1: Rome would crush it in sales.
0: He'd do well. It, it's, uh, I think the people who are best at it are the ones who actually are genuine and mm-hmm. you don't feel like. So for example, we we just had our plumbing redone in our house, huge project, very expensive. We'd had a plumber we use in the past for certain things who like literally for the last three years is something we've known we're going to have to get done. The house is built in 1950. It's got its original pipes. They're galvanized. Sooner or later, they're going to corrode. You just, you got to replace it. And it got to a point where our water pressure and our shower was just like comically awful. It, it, it had to go. Um, by the way, when you don't have that and then you do, it's like taking a shower now is like the highlight of the day again. <laughs> it, but, but we've had these, these plumbers we use for some other things who would give us quotes. And it just, it, it, it stressed me out the way that they did it. You know, it made me mm-hmm. feel like this is a ticking time bomb. And like, you're an idiot if you don't, re- you know, sign off on this $20,000 project today. And yep. we needed a new water heater. So we went with this guy um, who our friends had used and recommended. And he came in, did the project and, and gave us a quote, you know, kind of filled. I told him like, yeah, I know like we also need, you know, we need a full repipe at some point. And he just gave us a quote and was like, yeah, you know, here's, here's about what it'll cost. We'll come out and I'll look at, you know, I'll take notes on what we need and looked in the crawl space and say, oh yeah, this looks, this looks, uh, you know, we can work in here. It's a little tight, but we can work in here. This'll, this'll be good. We'll only need to cut into the wall here and here. It shouldn't be too bad. You know, we can fill this and just very like no pressure. This is what it'll cost. This is what the work is. He's was clearly like very smart and competent and knew what he was doing and, I just felt better about going with them. It happened to cost a little bit less too. And to the other plumbers credit, they, they're pretty upfront about like, Hey, if you get multiple bids, like we're not going to be the lowest one. We're not about trying to be the cheapest one. Um, but this guy did just as good work with, if not better for less money. So I do, I think like someone like Romo Dunze or, you know, someone of that personnel where it's just, they're not the, you know, they just kind of are who they are and they're comfortable and confident with who they are. You know, and there's a number of guys on this roster who I think are are like that. I think those are the people who are like really good at sales. You think about like a good salesman, you kind of think of the you know the slimy like used car salesman or whatever. Like, oh, you're really pushy, or you're good at like convincing people to buy things that they don't actually want or need. Like, that's not what a good salesman is. A good salesman is just somebody who very confidently and comfortably and without pressuring you just projects, you know, hey, this is this is why you should buy what I'm
1: selling. And if you're looking for someone who can project that sort of confidence or instill that sort of confidence in your sales team, it's worth a conversation with Ian McFarland, IPMcFarland.com. They are a company that looks for opportunities to make matches and really, whether it's finding someone to sort of complement your existing sales team or really building out that team entirely, it is worth a conversation with Ian and his team, IPMcFarland.com.
0: Uh, it's worth rating the podcast also. Yeah, it is. We're sitting on 175. I'm getting a little you know.
1: <laughs> getting itchy?
0: Yeah, getting a little itchy. It's May. I know.
1: I'll this is the what, slow
0: time, man. This is like I, I feel like especially with, with onmontlake.com, which you also should consider a paid subscription for, onmontlake.com um, I feel like I'm I'm like bracing myself for the slower season because you had that rush and like spring practice and there's all there's stuff going on and people are you know, you have access to the team for a a month or so. And, you know, people are really in, I, I feel like, um, this time of year, like from May through like mid July, people just aren't as, it's not even about, um, like if you, if you write something and it doesn't get read as much, it doesn't necessarily mean that like you, you played the wrong note it could just be people just aren't as like plugged into consuming and reading so much about their teams this time of year cuz it's it's just so slow, you know. And
1: too busy you're, watching you're, the Mariners not score.
0: Yeah. Yeah, or the Kraken. I tried to schedule my friends of the program call during the Kraken game uh this week. Did you get, I had did a you few people. Kickback? Yeah, and I mean nobody who was like you know, pissed, but there are a few people who are like, eh, you know, attendance might not be so great. Crack and play at 630. And I always, <laughs> I, ne- I never know, like, how much overlap there actually is on those things. Um, but what my my uh, my buddy was actually disappointed is he has crack and season tickets, and he was disappointed that I wound up rescheduling it because he was going to call in from his seats, so. <laughs> uh,
1: I'll tell you one person who needs to rate the podcast is Adam Esser.
0: <laughs> That's right. Oaktown Ace.
1: Oaktown yeah. Ace needs to get out there and, and, and rate the podcast.
0: Adam Esser, please let us know if you're... I kind of hope it's not the Adam Esser. Just <laughs> it <laughs> seems the like different... it would
1: be... The, the one thing is, the Adam Esser I knew is from Alameda. He's not from Oakland. It's still East Bay, though. So hmm. I'll be interested to see.
0: Well, whether you're Adam Esser, uh, a different Adam Esser, or somebody else... Uh, enjoy the rest of your week and we will talk to you next week. Food for thought. Uh,